0: I'm Connor Reid, with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Like most avid readers of fiction, I love books, and I mean actual physical books, not only their contents. The feel of the crisp pages of a brand new book or the aging leather cover of a hundred year old classic. The smell of a newly bought novel or of an old dusty second-hand bookshop. I'm sure I'm preaching to the converted here. Books are a truly wonderful invention. Although it has to be said there are some problems when it comes to using paper as a medium to store information. Paper is obviously extremely flammable. Books burn very easily, at around Fahrenheit 451, as Ray Bradbury tells us. They may burn accidentally or in one of history's many book burnings. Paper is all too easily destroyed by water, as many flooded library basements will attest. Old or just badly made paper becomes brittle and discoloured and eventually falls apart. Glue and other bindings disintegrate and pages get lost. Ink discolors or fades over time. And then there are other bookworms. A wonderfully varied array of beetles, ants, termites, moths and other insects not actually worms, will happily chew their way through the leather bindings, glue, paper, or the mould growing on books, devouring our words. In our age of mass instantaneous reproduction, this is not typically a major problem. But in the past, when book printing was hugely expensive, or earlier still, when a new copy of a book meant a scribe laboriously writing it out by hand, books were very rare and incredibly expensive. They were, in a way, more like a painting is to us today. There might be a single copy, which, if lost, is gone forever, with all the knowledge contained within There are countless great works of literature we have tantalising glimpses of, works we know were written, but as far as anyone can tell, they've been lost to history. Huge swathes of ancient Greek literature, for example, works referenced or described but long disappeared. There's a possible lost Shakespeare play based on Don Quixote. There's the amazing Yongle Encyclopedia from early 15th century China, a mammoth compendium of knowledge about the world. The encyclopedia was handwritten and worked on by over 2,000 scholars. It's made up of more than 22,000 chapters in 11,000 volumes, and it remains the largest encyclopedia in the world, until Wikipedia came along 600 years later. Today, of those 11,000 volumes, less than 400 survive. Between fires and imperial invasions, war and looting, theft and colonialism, the volumes slowly disappeared. Another lost work of literature.
1: The lost works that I would like to read are the lost poems and stories from the Anglo-Saxon period that were told alongside Beowulf, but Beowulf and a few poems, about 10, 20 poems have survived, but nothing else has. I want to read that, that literature. I mean, I used to teach Beowulf as an academic, and it was the thing I always began with was the textual history. How did this, how did these words survive? And going through the copy that survived from the 800s to about the 17th century and then it nearly died again in a, in a fire in the early 18th century. And isn't it a miracle that this extraordinary poem survived? And then let's think wider. If this survived, what else might there have been at the same time that was just as important and just as exciting, but it didn't. It's that kind of, that kind of survival just makes me shiver because so much has been lost and we will never know about it.
0: Another bibliophile.
1: Um, My name is Kate MacDonald and I'm a literary historian, I'm a publisher, I'm an editor and I run a publishing company called Handheld Press.
0: As you've heard, Kate MacDonald is and has been a lot of things, all based in and around literature. Most recently, she founded Handheld Press, a publishing house that specialises in uncovering and reprinting out-of-print works of literature. In other words, she finds the
1: lost books. One of my research colleagues said to me, this is a chap from Germany, he'd come over for a workshop that I'd been running and we were going to co-edit a book together. And I've done so much academic editing of books, so I bring together essays and whatnot by younger scholars to make a book. He said, why don't you start a publishing company? And I thought, nah, that'd be stupid. That's ridiculous. That was on a Friday, and I thought that's stupid. But by Monday, we got it going and we'd started the company. We bought the domain name and everything. So it was a pretty quick a quick um, turnaround of thinking.
0: And she hasn't looked back. Handheld books has been going strong for three years now. But it's not an obvious choice to set up a book publisher and to aim not to publish new works, not to tap into the current trends or the latest author on the up.
1: I've always been more interested in rediscovering old books I guess my initial impulse was, there are so many fantastic stories out there that are out of print and I want to bring them back into print. But I was also very aware of, in Britain, certainly, the um, it was what I call a a niche section of trade publishing called the reprint houses. And that's a term I've invented. It's probably used by other people too. But we specialize in republishing work that's fallen out of print. So I was very aware of that sector because that's the kind of book I like to read. And I was really aware of various texts that I knew I wanted to republish. So I had them at the top of my my list. I started with a wish list and I'm I'm working through it slowly.
0: I was curious how do you go about republishing an old book
1: there are presumably
0: quite a few issues
1: so let's assume that the book is fantastic and amazing and you can't stop enthusing about it the first thing to look into is who has the rights is it in copyright has the author died less than 70 years ago or is it out of copyright if it's out of copyright you're fine anyone can publish that text
0: But that's the problem. I can publish the text, so can you. Anyone can stick an e-book version online and sell it for 50 cents. And you've got a range of companies doing this, moving up in price from, say, the Wordsworth Classics to Penguin Classics to something like the Oxford University Press's World Classics and so on. If you're going to sell a book that anyone can access freely, you need to add value.
1: You need to offer something more, and that's what we do, because we have introductions and we have notes on the text that are... Kind of like the OUP World's Classics model, but I think a lot more accessible. We're not super scholarly. Everything has got a scholarly basis, but it's all in plain English. I edit to imagine my mother, who is not an academic. I imagine her reading it, and will she understand it? And that's my goal.
0: So that's one option. Taken out of copyright book, printed on good quality paper, with a nice cover, an appendix or notes, a well-written introduction, and so on. Things get more complicated, though, when the book is in copyright.
1: So you have to find the estate. That can be very difficult. There's a database called the WATCH database, which is a University of Reading and University of Austin, Texas project, which lists all the literary estates that have been supplied. And if you're lucky, the author you're working on might be listed there. But then the information might be missing or incorrect. And then you just have to ask around. And the more people you know, the more likely it is that you'll find the estate. Then you have to discuss terms. Can you afford it? And sometimes you can't. There are a couple of estates I know of that I've tried that I simply cannot afford to pay what they ask. So I'm just going to have to wait until that author comes out of copyright.
0: This happens a lot. Plenty of publishers are biding their time waiting for big name authors to come out of copyright, especially when their estates hold a very tight grip on their work. In 2012, for example, James Joyce's work came out of copyright and editions have flooded into print since. More recently still, in 2017, HG Wells's extensive catalogue of science fiction and other work finally arrived in the public domain. So what about handheld books then?
1: So the first book we republished was Ernest Brahma, um, What Might Have Been, which is a political satire published originally in 1907, and very quickly republished with the political bits chopped out by another company. So it kind of disappeared. It sort of slid under the blanket, if you like. And we republished it in its entirety with the 7,000 words that were cut. We put them back in. That was brought to me by a colleague who said my his former supervisor loved this novel and would really want to do the introduction. So that was terrific. And we did it. And it hasn't sold that well. And that's interesting. The next one that was brought to us, rather than me choosing it, was by the wife of a colleague who was an academic in her own right. And she was mad enthusiastic about Gerald O'Donovan, who is an Irish author I know your listeners will have heard of.
0: Have you? I'll put links to O'Donovan and all the authors mentioned on the website.
1: So she said, we've really got to publish Vocations, which is a novel of his from 1921, but it's set in the late Victorian period. And I was blown away by it. I thought it was the most fabulous novel about young girls being forced to go into the convent by various different means and how they reasserted their personalities and took charge of their lives again. So we published this and I was so enthusiastic and it sold the worst we've ever published. And I think that's because I did not choose it. I don't know how to market it properly. I'm not Catholic. I would just love this book to sell better because it's so, so good, but I'm missing it. And that's the problem. If I had brought the book to myself, if you like, I would have known so much more about it.
0: Book selling, it seems, works much better when it's personal. Which brings us to Rose Macaulay, an English author who was very well known in the first half of the 20th century and who Dr. MacDonald had done extensive academic work on.
1: As an academic editor, I put together the first book of scholarly essays about her. I'm also a bibliographer, so I put together the first full bibliography of all the scholarly work on her and all her all her writing, and it's a colossal list. But in the process of doing that, I discovered a novel that everybody had forgotten. And it was forgotten because it was very quickly taken off the list by the publisher because there were three pages in it that were potentially libelous. So it disappeared. She had to write three pages of blah to fill the plates and it was reissued. But by then, I think they'd spent all the money for marketing. So it kind of flopped. And the next book she published was a great success. So it just disappeared. But the reason why I was so excited about it was it's a direct influence on Aldous Huxley's Brave New World.
0: The novel, called What Not, was originally published in 1918.
1: We republished it um, in March 2019 and The Guardian in Britain, they got a hold of the story about the Aldous Huxley link and did a story about it and in the first week that story came out I sold about 500 copies through my website. So we reprinted it twice before publication day and it's been an absolute smash. And that's not the end of it. She wrote so many novels, Um, we're publishing two more this August and I'm in the middle of working on production of them both now because they're coming out together. And already people are getting so excited about them both coming back into print because they're so important for social history, for political history, for recovery of this tremendous woman writer. The case
0: of Rose Macaulay's Whatnot is pretty typical of out of print books more generally. It can be something small, in her case a legal issue which led to a loss of marketing momentum and a book can be lost, perhaps forever. And speaking of things being lost forever you certainly wouldn't want that fate for words to that effect. Well, by becoming a patron you can help the show and get some nice rewards in the process. If you head to patreon.com WTTE you can find out more and become the generous patron of literature you've always wanted to be. And when you're done with that, go listen to some top class storytelling. Fireside is a great podcast I would highly recommend, telling the stories of Irish mythology. Let me give you an idea The Sickbed of Chulainn. It was Samhain, what we now call Halloween when the mortal and other worlds are closest. The heroes of Ulster had gathered at Amon Macha to tell their great deeds of the year, what riches they had amassed, what warriors they had slain. And they could only tell true tales, because if they lied on Samhain when the other world was accessible, their own swords would cry out against them. Just type Fireside into your podcast player of choice and have a listen. Now, back to the lost books. Rose Macaulay's was one instance of a book being lost and falling out of print, but there are, of course, lots of reasons a book might disappear. It might be something grand or catastrophic, like a fire at a printer's destroying all the copies, or the works being lost in times of war. Far more common, though, is the very prosaic fact that books fall out of print and disappear because people don't read them. If nobody reads them, they don't get reprinted. The limited copies that do exist slowly fall out of circulation, and tragic as this might be for the author, the book is never heard of again. Book buying, like anything, has trends and fashions. Certain works may seem destined for immortality, only for them to be completely forgotten, even a generation later. Others seem like minor works, only to become classics. We are a fickle book-reading public. But there are other things at play here as well. There are arbiters of good taste, gatekeepers, those who form the Canon with a capital C. When a book arrives on school and university reading lists, it has a far greater chance of surviving across generations.
1: I think now of John Buckham's 39 Steps. It's a very slight, slim thriller, but it also invented the modern thriller in the 20th century. And that has never been out of print, mainly because A, people loved it. And then because people loved it and they grew up in, into positions of authority, it began to appear in uh, things like uh, school curricula in the 1960s onwards. In the 1950s, that novel, among many others, of buckens was reprinted in paperback by Penguin, so it became very accessible and very cheap.
0: I haven't done an episode on Buchan and spy thrillers. I'll put it on the list. The canon, though, is a really powerful way of perpetuating the sale and reprinting of great works of literature. Whether you agree they are unquestionably great or not is another matter. Certainly the whole idea of the canon came under a lot of pressure in the 1980s and 90s and has continued to do so for various reasons.
1: The Feminist Recovery Project began because in the 1980s it was so apparent that the canon had been formed with men in mind and women's writing had been abandoned or undervalued. So you have the Women's Press, you had Virago Books, those are the two big, big publishing houses. For feminist recovery in the 1980s and 90s. And then you got Persephone. Persephone Books in London was the modern um, reprint house that really led the way in recovering not just women writers, but in the main, 90% female writers whose books had been hugely popular but had gone out of print. There
0: are plenty of political reasons why certain works don't survive, just as there are reasons of literary merit. Really though, when you think about it, most works fall out of print, most authors disappear, especially in an age when book publishing does not even necessarily need a publisher at all. The real miracle is when a book stays in print, when a novel is reprinted and reprinted across generations, locations, across centuries, and the appeal remains. There has to be something truly special. The quality has to be there.
1: If you think of someone like Colm Toibin, Neil Gaiman, Philip Pullman, Hilary Mantel, Nicola griffiths these are phenomenal authors whose work is going to last because their writing is just so good and it will keep selling. If a publisher can repackage a book without changing the insides and sell it again to a new generation and another generation, think of the Harry Potter novels. They're not actually that well written, but as a unit, they are a phenomenal cultural experience and they're not going to stop making money for Bloomsbury. And the same with Hilary Mantel. I haven't read her third Thomas Cromwell novel yet. I'm going to. I have no doubt it will be as epically good and as high quality as the previous two, because she's such a terrific writer.
0: I'm sure you have your own list. I can certainly think of some authors I'm confident will be around for a long time to come. And of course, we can digitally preserve copies of books, avoiding some of paper's problematic qualities. So much of the short magazine fiction from the 20th century has long disappeared because of the ephemeral nature of cheaply printed magazines. And you may think that that's not a problem anymore, but there's certainly a digital equivalent today.
1: Think of all the fan fiction. Um, yeah, fan fiction that's written online because nobody will publish it in print. No one will invest the money to publish it as a, a conventional book. Fan fiction is a very, very unstable Um, yeah, it's an unstable format because who who knows how long those files, that website are going to be retained for. Who is backing them up? So that is the new kind of ephemerality, if you like.
0: So what next for Handheld Books then on their journey of uncovering the last literature of the world?
1: Well, on the micro scale, I've got three or four books to bring out this year and seven next year, and I've started planning for 2022. So that production treadmill... In a good way continues. I am actively trying to find magnificent and unputdownable forgotten fiction by great writers from the past who happen not to be white and I'm finding it hard work. I would really welcome people's suggestions on novels or works of nonfiction, but not poetry by people who do not come from the white anglophone sphere because we need to find these they're important Mm. and they need to be recovered you
0: know what to do i'm sure some of you have got some forgotten fiction tips out there so get in touch there are millions of books in the world thousands more are printed every day maybe if you're an author your best-selling book will slowly fade away and fall out of print another lost book Or maybe someone like Kate MacDonald will come along and bring your book back from the dead. Republish it in a beautiful edition for a whole new generation of readers. that's it for another episode of words to that effect thank you so much for listening a very special thanks to kate Macdonald. you can read more about her and find links to all the books mentioned and to handheld books of course on the wtte website which is wttepodcast.com you can follow the show at words to that effect on instagram and facebook and i'm on twitter at ced ced or eid you can also tell your friends i would urge you to tell your friends Tell them about the show, pick a book nerd friend of yours and send them this episode. I would love to get the word out more and more. Music this week was from Audioblox. And finally, as always, thank you to my kind supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show or tell me about your favourite lost books, head to patreon.com slash WTTE, where there are lots of lovely things waiting for you in exchange for your support. And that's it. I'll see you in two weeks for another episode.